You're listening to the Speech Uncensored podcast. Join us for weekly discussions diving into all the particulars of communication, voice, swallow, and cognition with tangible applications to the world of medical speech and language pathology. Additional resources and the discussion guide for this episode are in specially curated show notes on speechuncensored.com. This week, I'm interested in learning more about resources for caregivers. I wanted to shine a light on the support that caregivers need since most of our attention and effort go to our patients. I mean, also at some point, each one of us might become a caregiver of a loved one. And so I feel like this information can be doubly useful in our own lives and in our professional lives. So I'm delighted to have Roz Jones join me to share her tips for caregivers. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm your curious host. And now let's meet Roz. Welcome, Roz. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. I love talking about caregiving. So I am on fire and ready to help. Good. Excellent. So before we dive into our topic, I want to learn a little bit more about you, Roz. Tell me who you are, what you do, and where you're located. I am Roz Jones, the CEO and owner of Jacksonville's Best Caregivers. We are located in the sunny state of Florida. And I help expand the life of your loved one. And I do it because I want to help the caregiver on that journey to reduce that SOS, which is being stressed, overwhelmed, and providing safety and security for your loved one. When you can't do it all, you give us a call. And briefly, I fell into caregiving because uh, there was someone in my church that was having surgery. And it, it was one of the older women in the church. And in our culture, we all, we call them one of the mothers. And she said, I want you to go to the hospital with me. And I said, why me? And she said, why not you? So, you know, when old people speak, you have to be obedient. So I went on to the hospital and she had, you know, intestines problems. And she said, well, go with me. I went, I said, okay. She goes to the surgery, supposed to be for two days in and out. They're going to observe it. Right. But you know, something is wrong. When a surgeon come out and still has his beanie and his mask on, something is wrong. He said, Roz, Mother Rose is having problems. We need for you to sign this documentation, so on and so forth. Her husband is dead. Sister has stage four cancer. She has no children. I told them, whatever the hospital policies are, do what you have to do to save her life. But I am not in the authority to, you know, make those decisions. And so, of course, my mental health probably went through the roof at that time. I was probably like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But, you you know, the same thing that probably happened to me is the same thing that happened to a lot of people during COVID. Is that they had to make these decisions, but they had no authority. So that's one of the reasons why I'm here to talk today. Mm. All right. So let's unpack that. Like um, people being thrust in positions of making really significant decisions without any preparation for that? Is that a little bit like what you're unpacking there? That is exactly what I'm unpacking. A lot of times because of generational uh, differences, your, you know, our parents may be in their eighties or in their seventies. It used to be, well, you know, everything's going to take care of itself. Well, we have to realize that is that most of our families no longer live in the communities where they grew up. So nobody knows nobody anymore. It used to be you would graduate high school, Mm -hmm. go to college in the same area, come back home, take care of your parents. They're not doing that anymore. There's a lot of long distance caregiving. There's a lot of um, step parents, mixed families. And COVID put a lot of stress on families was because 
they didn't have the preparation nor the conversation that if I got sick or if I was in a position where I can't speak, who's going to speak for me? Mm-hmm. That's a mental challenge on anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you whether you are a caregiver experienced as we are, or if you have no experience and you're the person you're taking care of has not written their wishes down on paperwork, that's mentally frustrating anyway. Then the other mental part is not even being able to say goodbye or hold your hand at the last breath. Mm-hmm. So Roz, I'm wondering if we could like have a working definition of what a caregiver is, because in my mind, it's somebody who uh, is caring for the physical needs of a person um, when that person is unable to care for them themselves, like helping them get dressed, maybe helping them bathe, helping them do grooming tasks for themselves. So what I'm hearing from you, though, is that that working definition really ignores like the psychosocial and the mental aspects of what caregiving is, like the decision making on that person's behalf as well. So I'm wondering if you can give me a definition of what a caregiver is from your perspective and how you use it with the work that you do. Caregiving is assisting someone with their activities of daily living, their independent activities of daily living, helping them age in place. Mm. And when I say help them age in place, you're helping them stay at home as long as possible. And so caregiving comes before someone goes to the nursing home, before someone, you know, forgets who they are, before um, they're not paying their bills. The care a lot of times starts before that, when you start recognizing signs of they're not eating or they're losing weight, something is going on. And caregiving, like I said, is way before they've had a heart attack or stroke. Sometimes there are signs, eight signs of aging that we don't recognize. And we take it for granted, you know, that our parents are always going to be youthful and they're not. Mm -hmm. And so we have to recognize the signs of the yard is not getting cut. Food is stacking up in the refrigerator or mildewing. You know, the bills aren't getting paid. Things are getting canceled. You know, life insurance is not, you know, there, there are a lot of things that go on before someone gets to the point of, I can't do it for myself anymore. And we have to recognize those symptoms. So the care comes really, I want to say when our parents start getting in their sixties and seventies, we start contacting them more. Hey, what's going on? If something would happen to you, you know, what do you want? And now with COVID age, you know, caregiving has, um, there's no age on caregiving when, when, when you're giving the care because it could happen as, you know, when someone is in their teens, in their 20s, their 30s. So caregiving doesn't happen like it used to. COVID, mm-hmm. has, COVID has shifted the whole definition of caregiving. It's when you make the decision to help someone, you make that decision to step in and to help someone either on a temporary or a permanent basis, let me say that again, on a temporary or a permanent basis to help them get through this situation, whether it's, you know, a broken leg, you know, I've had surgery, or it's a long-term decision with someone that has dementia, Alzheimer's, polio, cerebral palsy, whatever the case may be, MS, whatever the case may be, 
but it's a decision that you have to make. And, and like I said, a lot of times, sometimes on a short-term basis, and sometimes it's a year, and then sometimes it's decades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you started off by telling us your story about how you kind of got involved in this caregiving role. And so how did that develop into you creating a business out of that? Well, (laughs) it started because one of the nurses saw me taking care of the mother of the church, like I told you, Miss Rose. And she said, you know, this is really natural for you. And you ought to go down the street because, you know, we need sitters. And so I said, oh, okay. I said, well, this is not what I want to do. I was, trust me, I was on the the path to CEO being, you know, I was in a health insurance company. I was on my way up the land. I was moving on up like the Jeffersons. <laughs> but I said, well, I'll go down the street and check out this company where they say they have the sitters. So I went down there and I said, oh, okay. I said, I understand you guys are looking for sitters. How much are you paying? And at the time, minimum wage was $8. And I said, you've got to be joking me. You mean to tell me I have all this responsibility. These people's lives are in our hands. And all you want to pay is minimum wage? That was when I decided to go ahead and see what I could do different than what these companies were doing. How are you going to pay somebody minimum wage and they're still starving? They're still on federal government aid and, 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 and Medicaid and Medicare and getting food stamps and tandem. I said that if I opened up a business, I would never pay anybody minimum wage. And to this, and when I started, I never paid anybody minimum wage. And to this day, never pay minimum wage. And so I wanted to make sure that I did my small part to make sure that uh, people could have a livelihood mm-hmm. versus a struggle. Mm-hmm. That was my goal. Excellent. Okay, Roz, one of the areas that you wanted to talk about today was long distance caregiving. And I think that's a fascinating topic. I mean, especially in these times of COVID-19 where we weren't able to travel, we weren't able to go see people even in the same town for a period of time. So I'd love to open up the discussion on long distance caregiving now. With long distance caregiving, we have to realize that it's just what it is. It's long distance. And so you you may be an only child or maybe your sister or someone is close, but you're still the primary caregiver. You can still be the primary caregiver, have family members here who, who, who have made a decision. I don't want to take care of mama, daddy, aunt, uncle, friend or whoever. So a long-distance caregiver's responsibility is to make sure you have your documentation. And to the documentation that you need to have is a power of attorney, uh, a do not resuscitate order, a living will, and a health care surrogate. This is so that you can make decisions for this person. In case the hospital comes to you and says, hey, this is what's going on. This, you know, that this person can make a decision and you don't need an act of Congress or, you know, I need a, you know, a a landline to make a decision because sometimes when it's life and death, you need to designate a person who can do that, whether it's long distance or if it's someone close. But the long distance caregiver has to understand that your responsibility is just as important as someone that is in the same town with the person receiving the care. 
The long distance caregiver needs all that documentation. They need to make sure that they hire a company or a caregiver that can take care of the loved one. Because remember now you're long distance. So either you need to hire a private duty or you need to hire an agency. And so there's many companies, there's many agencies out here. If you're long distance, my suggestion would be to hire a company because they already do the background checks. They already do the drug checks. They already make sure that they you know, have the COVID vaccine. So that's steps that you don't have to pay for. That would be my suggestion if you're a long distance caregiver. If you are a long distance caregiver, then you need to make checks in on this person daily, just as if you were in town with them. You need to call daily because you want to make sure that this person, once again, is safe and secure. And then it also keeps the person who's caring on their toes. And also, you know, you know what's going on. Also, too, as a long distance caregiver, you want to be in contact with the doctors. You need to build that care team. The doctors, the nurses, uh, the physical therapists, dentists, optometrists, foot doctor. You want to be you want to be in contact with these people, and then you want to have a relationship with the caregiver. Are are you noticing any changes? You know, are they moving less? Are they urinating on themselves more? Are they becoming more incontinent? These are the things that, as a caregiver, someone has to be your eyes for you because you are not there with the person. And these are the things that are extremely important as this person ages in place, because there may become a point in time. And as a long distance caregiver, please don't promise these people that you're taking care of that I'm not going to put you in a nursing home because it may come a point in time to where the type of care you need is at a level above, way above what the caregiver or that company can give. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to have those conversations as a long distance caregiver. These conversations are very important. Yeah. Yeah. Roz, you just dropped a ton of information there. <laughs> I'm over here like, like really quickly, like writing down notes. <laughs> I mean, cause I've got aging parents. Now they would like be so mad at me for saying that on a podcast, even though, oh my goodness, it's true. Like we're, <laughs> we're like all going to get to that age where the people around us are going to start watching <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so i want to go back to where you were talking about the different documents that we need to have so you talked about having a power of attorney that's one document a do not resuscitate style document so we need to have that conversation with that person about like what level they would want to be resuscitated at or at all would they need a living will they need right and I want to, I want to step back on that. Do not resuscitate order. Mm -hmm. Now on a do not resuscitate order. Also, they need to understand that if I'm not able to eat, you know, if for some reason do I, you know, do I want a feeding tube or I don't want a feeding tube? You, you, you need to take, because we just think it's all about the heart, but we also have to understand too, that sometimes people can't uh, you know, eat solid foods and make it to a point to where they can't swallow at all. Do you want them on a feeding tube or do you want the do not resuscitate order implemented? Mm -hmm. You know, we have to look at, you know, beyond just the diagnosis with that do not resuscitate. So th this is a conversation. It has to be in writing. This is do not resuscitate order. The power of attorney gives people authorization 
to handle your business so far as your bank and paying your bills and even down to your social media. If something happens, who's going to turn this off? Who's going to shut it down? Mm -hmm. If you don't have something in writing, then, you know, it stays up. And so mm -hmm. now you, you, you see Facebook and different uh, social medias. They have what's called a legacy person, which is similar to a beneficiary. And that person can come in and shut your account down at your time of death or, you know, you know, sometime thereafter. Mm -hmm. The healthcare surrogate allows the person to make healthcare decisions on your behalf. You know, do I need to be transported to rehab? Do I need a, to be incubated? You know, do I need medicine? All these decisions need to, you know, need to be given either to one person or to several people. And then the living will. The living will is a document that gives a person the authority to help with your estate, you know, you know, with your property, with, you, you know, to manage all of that. And all of these documents, you need to have a copy of your birth certificate. You know, if, if you're, you know, asking someone to take care of you, if you're married, a copy of the marriage certificate, if you were in the military, DD-214, if you're divorced, the divorce papers, you know, anything like that, because if by some chance you have to go to probate, the first thing they're going to ask you to do is to prove heirship. And for someone who can't speak, they can't tell you where their birth certificate is. And if you have to go to vital statistics, that could take sometimes anywhere from, you know, one week to 30 days to get it, depending mm -hmm. on, you know, what state you're in. And then you have to prove why you want to get it. So get these doc all these documents before something catastrophic happens. I really like how you mentioned about the DNR and having the aspect in there about the feeding tube, yay or nay. Um, that is right up our alley as speech and language pathologists. We're often involved in providing information on like diet levels that could be appropriate for their structure, like what's in place and their ability level. And then talk about like, because mm -hmm. food is more than nourishment to us. It's also comfort. And so we often love people by feeding them, right? So if we're in this caregiving role, we, we want to love them. We want to feed them, but that may not be what's best for the person. And on the other hand, the person may wish for certain things that might not be technically like appropriate for them to eat and maintain health, but that's their decision. They get to make that choice. Um, and so it's really good that part of that DNR isn't just about providing breathing and heartbeat, but also to eat or not to eat by alternative means with the feeding tube or not. So that's a really good conversation to have with that person. It, it is. And I really like how you're emphasizing that point about how we need to have all of these ducks in a row before they're unable to communicate with us, before something happens to where we don't know what their wishes are. And then also too, with the food, people have to, people don't recognize that when someone is eating and they start coughing every time they eat or every time they swallow, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. They're not coughing just because, you know, they're coughing. There's some, you know, something is not breaking down in the mouth. So we have to realize that, you know, as well, we as clinicians understand that people are, you know, food aspirating and it could cause pneumonia. But we have to, we have to educate people too as caregivers if you keep hearing them cough, it's for a reason. And so we need to adjust the diet. 
you know, we need to put thickener in, in the liquids, you know, to help alleviate this, you know, possibility of pneumonia. So, you know, there are a lot of things, but then also too, a person may not be eating because they're actively dying. Mm-hmm. So we have to look at all of that. We have to understand all of this. And so all of this information that we're giving today is to help educate, but then also to, to make sure that we still facilitate as much comfort to one who is aging as possible. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love it, Ross. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I really like, I'm, I'm kind of like going back to the notes that I took about, you know, the long distance caregiving, starting with the documentation, doing daily check-ins with that person that you're providing that remote caregiving for, contacting the doctors, the nurses, the dentists, the PTs, everybody involved in their health, um, and then having that relationship with the person who is present with your loved one, who is acting as the physical caregiver for them. Um, these apply to like, those in-person ones too, you know, like even if they're in the same town, you know, these are all, I feel like this list is really applicable um, across the board. So I think it's a great place to start. I mean, I feel like this is so good for me as a daughter with aging parents, like <laughs> this is so helpful. <laughs> but, but, you know, a lot of times, even as a long distance caregiver, or, you know, sometimes I even suggest a granny cam mm-hmm. because, you want to see what's going on in the house. Not to say you don't trust anybody, but if you're an only child and you live in California and your parents live in, let's say, for instance, Florida, how how will I have peace of mind at 24-7 nothing is happening? Also, too, as a long-distance caregiver, you need to check the credit bureaus to make sure that there's no fraud happening on your loved one's account. Because a lot of times they will be talking on the phone with someone the caregiver may not know that, you know, that they're not supposed to talk. And they could be giving out their bank account numbers, their social security check, their information regularly. This is important. Even as even if you're close, but particularly if you are a long distance caregiver, you're the only one. And even if you're not the only one have because once a year we, we are allowed to have a free you know, a credit bureau given to us. And then if you think it's fraud, they can give you another one throughout the year. These are things that we forget about. Mm -hmm. And it's so important because people prey on you when you're sick and old. Mm -hmm. They do. They do. I I just spent some time with my parents and the number of spam calls they get a day is obscene. Like it is wild. So yeah, there are definitely people out there. Okay. Another point for our conversation was caregiver self-care. Um, are you ready to transition into that topic or were, was there anything else that you wanted to cover in this section? Mm-mm, let's go into this self-care. Yes. <laughs> this is yes. important. With self-care, <laughs> With self-care, we have to learn how to set boundaries. And the first thing we have to set a boundary is, is to have the conversation And ask your parents, what do they need? Then tell your parents what I am available to do. And if there is a gap, then we got to hire some help because you can't do it all. There's no way. Most homes that I know of are two people, income earners. And, you know, the mother is taking Johnny to piano lessons, soccer, 
polo match, horse riding, football, golf, whatever the, you know, whatever the parents are doing. But then, you know, your mom, you know, would say, well, I took care of you when you were little here, you know, here's the, the, the guilt that comes in. And so you have to explain to them, hey, this is our schedule. This is what we agree, agreed upon. If you need more than this, then we need to hire some help. You've got to, number one, set boundaries. Number two, you got to set up a calendar to let them know when to expect you. You, not the caregiver, you. Number three, if you have to hire a caregiver, what days are the caregiver, what days the caregiver coming in? And then, you know, your parents are going to be like, oh, we're spending all this money. Nothing will be left for you when I die. Well, if I die before you, <laughs> you know, it, it, it won't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just talking. Parents will try to guilt. I'm telling you, parents will put that guilt on you and say, for instance, if one of the parents is dead, you know, my grandmother used to do this. She was so good at this. If your grandfather was living, you know, um, I would be all right. If you're, you know, if my sister was around, I wouldn't have to bother y'all. And, you know, all this guilty stuff, you have to be strong. <laughs> you have to be strong. And the reason why I'm saying all this is that if you don't block off that time, to where if there's some white space anywhere on your calendar, that's time for self-care. I implemented over two years ago. I take a nap every day for two hours. I turn off the phone. I shut down the computer. Every day you should be doing self-care. Close your eyes and don't think of nothing. If you want to listen to music, burn a candle, burn sage, spray some lavender. Listen to the birds, put your feet in the grass, kiss a tree, whatever you want to do. That's your time. That's your time. But self-care is, <laughs> yes, I said kiss a tree. <laughs> self-care is daily. It's not just on Saturday. <laughs> and self-care is not selfish. I just told somebody the other day, I never saw my mother nor grandmother go and get a pedicure. Go get a facial, go get a back massage or anything, because they all I knew was sacrifice. Mm. This word self care, if I had known about that, I probably wouldn't be overweight. I probably wouldn't be stressed because self care really became like within the last 10 or 15 years. But you got to block off that time daily, daily. So if you get up in the morning, self care is drinking water before, before your day starts. When your day ends, drink another glass of water. In the middle of a day, drinking up, that's a part of self-care. If you don't take care of yourself, you cannot take care of the person that you need to take care of. If you are raggedy as a mango seed, you know, mm -hmm. you know, your hair is falling out. You have high blood pressure, but the person you're taking care of is fat and happy. <laughs> yeah. uh, Go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just talking. <laughs> I love it because it's so true, you know, and I, I think that's what sometimes what happens. Well, when people are parents and, you know, being a parent and being a caregiver of somebody older than you, you know, they can be very similar. I hear this refrain quite often, you know, if you're not taking care of yourself, how can you take care of anybody else? 
and you keep running yourself ragged, there's nothing left to give and you, you can't be there and you can't be present for them with the time that you have together. And that's important. And that's crucial. We've got, no, no, see, we have to put us first, no matter who we take care of, no matter what our job is, whether we're a mother, father, wife, husband, partner, whatever the case may be, I got to put me first. I got to, mm -hmm. I got to, you have to, if your parents are pouting, they'll be okay. As soon as the swelling goes down, they'll be all right. They'll get over it. That's so true. Um, it's like you said, it's all about setting those boundaries and having that conversation with what they need versus what you're able to give. And just because they, they enumerate certain things that they need, doesn't mean that you're the only person who's able to give them those things. Like you said, decide what you can give on that list of things they need and then hire what you can't do. That's it. Just like I know, I don't want to cut grass. So I, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't like cutting grass. So I hire somebody to cut my grass. I refuse to cut grass. I hate washing my car. So I have a membership at a car wash. These are things that I <laughs> outsource. Mm -hmm. I outsource. You have to, you, ha you cannot physically in the day, take care of someone else and take care of you and not rest. Your body has to shut down. If your body does not reset, then you become bitter, mm -hmm. you have burnout, exhaustion, and it leads to health problems. Mm -hmm. That's right. Roz, I'm wondering if I can pick your brain. As a businesswoman who has worked as a caregiver and now like operates a business for providing this service, you know, earlier you mentioned in, in one of your recommendations for, for people who are acting in that remote caregiving capacity is to have a relationship with that caregiver. What about other professionals who are working with the, the client in an official capacity and need to interact with that caregiver. So basically what I'm talking about is a, as a speech therapist who may be interacting with that client, how do we also interact with the caregiver? Like what would be good tips that you've kind of, maybe that you've experienced through your work of, because earlier you talked a lot about education and we need to provide education. So what types of education is beneficial to also provide the caregiver as they can continue to support the client and all of that. If you know that your parents' memory is declining, they don't remember as well, all of the providers should have your number and should reach out to you first. Don't even call the person who's receiving the care. Call me first. Call me before you go to that house so I can let the caregiver know that you're coming. Mm-hmm. Because what will happen is if I call your mother and she has Alzheimer's, then you show up at the house. The caregiver doesn't know. It's, it's a safety issue. Mm -hmm. It's a safety issue. So the caregiver doesn't know. The person receiving the care has forgotten that, that they spoke to somebody. Mm -hmm. And you don't know who's coming in the house. So if all of the providers have the power of attorney and know that there's a health care surrogate, and know that they're supposed to speak to you first. This is what happens. It establishes a relationship. I trust you. You trust me. This is what's going on. Then I let the caregiver know. Then the caregiver can let the person receiving the care. Hey, we got to get up a little early today. We're having company. It's establishing order and protocol. Mm -hmm. 
to not only protect the person receiving the care, but then protect you as a person of power attorney. Because now, don't forget now, you still are in charge of this person because now they are declining mentally. That's what the power of attorney is for, the healthcare surrogate living will, because now the healthcare surrogate is kicking in. You have to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important that they contact you first so that you can talk to the caregiver. Hey, are there any changes that, that they need to be aware of before they get there? Because sometimes the caregiver cannot talk in front of the person receiving care because they'll say, oh, nothing is wrong. Oh, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. And the reason why they do that is because they figure that if they get sick or get any worse, you're going to take me out of my home and put me into a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not it necessarily. You could be, you know, in your house all the way up to palliative care. And then you may have to transition to hospice or whatever. But it's important for those reasons for the care for the person who is the power of attorney, healthcare surrogate, to be the first person of contact for any provider. And even the provider should be taught this. Why would you contact someone who has dementia at all time? Oh, they talk well. They say, yeah, they understood I was coming. But mm-hmm. did they write it down? You don't even know mm-hmm. if they wrote it down. They can't remember to write it down. All right. Yep. Excellent. I agree with that. Like it's all about communicating kind of with all the stakeholders I think of them as. So uh, like family members who are involved in that care plan, the caregiver who is present with the person that you're working with and communicating what you can with the person with the level that they're able to receive and understand and, and tolerate. So it's all about that, spreading that communication and finding out who does have that, that power of attorney, that healthcare surrogate level, and, and working with those people in that capacity. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, Roz, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your expertise on this area. I've learned a ton. It's really helped open my eyes to the different levels of uh, what a caregiver is, how its focus is on um, helping a person age in place, and um, that it is possible to do it long distance. Knowing the right tools, setting boundary, having your paperwork all in order. And yeah, I really like how you've emphasized like guarding your mental health so that you can be an effective and efficient uh, caregiver. So thank you so much, Roz. You are so welcome. Is there anything that I missed that I need to add on? Just, you know, any, any other little nuggets you need? Let me think. Oh, you know what? Okay. So I made a note that you talked about the granny cam. Where would someone have that set up to be respectful of that person's privacy while balancing the need to, to be present and, and to keep that loved one as safe as possible? Um, where have you seen people set these up? And of course, if you set up a granny cam, you would tell everybody who enters in that that space that there is a camera and that they are being monitored. Um, is that correct? That's correct. You would let them know that, you know, there is a camera and the reason why I'm doing it is for safety reasons. And so, you know, that any, any company that you hire, they will know, you know, this is going on. You know, you can set a camera up at the door you know, on the outside of the door to see who's coming. And then you can also have cameras on the outside of the house to make sure that for intruder purposes. Then on the inside of the house, I would have it in the common areas, such as, you you know, when someone comes in the door, in the kitchen, 
in the common area where they sit in the bedroom, you know, not in the bathroom, in the bedroom so that you can see how someone is putting someone into the bed or taking them out of the bed. Okay. And so you're not intruding on their privacy. You know, you, you don't see them, you know, in the, in their birthday suits. This is just to make sure that when someone is getting in and out of the bed, that they're taking care of safety. Because a lot of times, if you notice a lot of the abuse that goes on is when it's time for an elderly person to go to bed or to get up is because a lot of times they're afraid to go to bed because they're scared of the dark. They're scared. They're going to die alone. And then when it's time to get up, because sometimes some of them have the, what's called the, the sundowners, uh, you know, sin, syndrome where they up all night and then sleep all day because they're scared to sleep at night that, that they're going to die alone. So we have to recognize that. And so as they get older, you know, I, I have a lady now every now and then she doesn't want to go to bed. She wants to sleep in her recliner and we let her sleep in her recliner. The kids are upset about it. But I said, she's been doing this for a long time where well, you didn't tell us. And I said, well, she was safe. She had the, you know, the 911 button. Everything is fine. She had a cell phone, all of that. I said, we've been doing this for months. So the purpose, you know, of the granny cam is not to scare anybody, but again, it's for safety and security and to take the stress off of a long distance caregiver. Mm -hmm. So those are the places that I would suggest to have a camera. Okay. Yep. I think you've answered all my questions. I mean, I'm sure we could sit here for another few hours and I could just pick your brain and learn all the wonderful things and hear lots of interesting stories. But I think you've provided us a great insight and given us some really good tools to use to be the caregivers that I'm sure we will be in the future for our loved ones if uh, some of us aren't already in that capacity. So thank you so much, Roz. I appreciate it. You are so welcome. I hope you're able to use the information Roz presented on long distance caregiving, caregiver documentation, and caregiver self-care in your practice. I think it's important for us to remember that caregivers are handling a lot and would benefit from some additional resources and support. The discussion guide for Roz's episode is in the show notes for this episode on speechuncensored.com. I think it has excellent prompts for you and a small group of SLPs to dig into. And my hope is that by implementing these resources and discussing them in a group setting will result in enriching your practice. A big thanks to Laura Miller for her terrific audio editing skills. As always, thank you, Laura. <laughs> and I'd be honored if you could post a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts so other SLPs can find the podcast and join us on this journey. I'm so glad you've decided to spend your time with the Speech Uncensored podcast, and I hope that the material that we've covered today has nourished your mind so that your practice can flourish. I want you to get out there and be awesome. Awesome.